Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's my duty tonight to introduce Major Oliver Stewart. I doubt whether he wants any introduction from any of you here. But I think I might remind you that he was a fighter pilot in the First War and was decorated for this. He then went to Martlesham. He was a test pilot at Martlesham, which many of you know what that means. Then he went into journalism. He was correspondent for a number of newspapers, including the Times, and he was editor of that journal which we all admired, Aeronautics. Well, I think we best know him, perhaps, when we hear his voice booming at Farnborough. And I'm now going to ask him to do the same thing and tell us about journalism in the same tone of voice which we have enjoyed so much at Farnborough through the years. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, the last issue of the monthly magazine Aeronautics appeared a few days ago, and because it's shut after 23 years of publication, the title of this paper ought to be, I suppose, The Decline and Fall of Aviation Journalism. We come to bury aviation journalism, not to praise it. No, the fact is that we come to bury a certain kind of aviation journalism, and to take a glance at another kind that may prevail in the future. As aeronautics disappears, so the aeroplane and astronautics changes its name, its appearance, and its policy, and flight changes its name and alters its typography and layout. Aviation, as such, loses its grip of the national daily and Sunday newspapers. A French publisher of some of the best-known French aeronautical papers enters the British market with an English edition of Aviation and Space magazine. After at least 40 years of stability, aviation journalism is undergoing radical changes. Those changes synchronize with changes in the structure both of the aircraft industry and of the publishing industry. Today, in Britain, bigness is worshipped as the only God. Successive ministers, each one more immune from aeronautical enthusiasm than his predecessor, and each one driven forward by an implacable civil servant, have glued together many small aircraft firms to make two or three big ones. And because these groups are big, the government and many other people think they must be good. In the same way publishers tend to believe that bigness is best. The formerly independent publications have been merged and merged until they squeak. And now the results of the merging begin to appear. In essence, they are the same for the publishing industry as for the aircraft industry. A diminution of interest in the article produced. When Stanley Spooner and C.G. Gray were in charge of flight and of the aeroplane, they were both passionately interested in writing on aviation. Their papers reflected their interest. Today, those publications are still edited by people who are interested in aviation, but they're owned by people who are interested in other matters. The giant 
publishing concern is an agglomeration of financial, not journalistic units. And the giant aircraft constructing concern is an agglomeration of financial, not aeronautical units. It's finance that makes the world go round. Most newspapers and periodicals and most aircraft are counters used by financiers in a mysterious game. They shift them round, take them over, merge them, buy and sell them, throw them away without knowing anything about them. The supreme heads of the publishing and aircraft constructing industries would be hard put to it to notice the difference if you substituted frozen fish for newspapers and old boots for aeroplanes. The article produced has become a symbol without intrinsic value. There's a real possibility that an aviation paper like Flight International or the Aeroplane and Commercial Aviation News may one day be taken over in error by an aircraft group like Hawker Sidley. And an aircraft firm like A.V. Rowe or Vickers may one day find itself within the Daily Mirror group of publications. It's happening already. Those who sail in the Solent often see coastal trading ships ploughing through the water with on their sides the words British Road Services. And the men who climb the rigging in the ferry boats wear jerseys with the words British Railways. <laughs> the point to be seized, because it has such a profound effect on the tenor of aviation journalism, is that financial viability is now associated with bigness and dissociated from the product itself. Whether the product's a ship or train or car or aeroplane or newspaper doesn't matter. And now that the aircraft industry has become almost as big as it can become within Britain, the politicians are rushing around Europe trying to merge it with foreign aviation industries. When they've done that, the British industry will attain that nirvana visualized by Mr. Duncan Sands and his advisors when it will be able to export back to itself. Aviation journalism came into existence and thrived and became powerful prosperous, before the cult of bigness began. It depended then for its success on its grip on the reader. If the aeroplane and flight are compared at the time when they were in competition, they are seen to have canvassed their readers with two different methods. The aeroplane by opinion and comment, flight by facts and figures. They had this clear differentiation. differentiation sorry, Flight for the facts, the aeroplane, for what Charles Gray had to say about him. Charles Gray was cantankerous, opinionated, changeable, long-winded, bombastic, mannered, petty, snobbish, and usually wrong, but he was readable. From a literary point of view, his style was poor. He disliked the personal pronoun and used, refused to use I or the editorial we, preferring one. And as there was always a great deal of Charles Gray in everything he wrote, the ones were multiplied until they reached the millions. But his style did convey his zeal for aviation. It did enable him to be exceedingly rude to people he believed were acting against aviation's interests and to put over the jokes he collected so industriously. And it brought him readers, not only in the United Kingdom, but all over the world. 
That individual touch is unlikely to appear again in the aviation journalism of the future. It was acceptable in those days because aviation was looked on as the finest flower of technology, deserving a literate press, and the aviation pioneers were men of Catholic interests and literary understanding. For the aviation journalist, the inference was clear. A large part of his audience would be capable of a critical appreciation of his writing, and he'd have to try and maintain a standard above that to be found in the specialist publications serving some other industries. Style sheets in the aviation press illustrate the lengths to which those papers have gone to be accurate in such things as the names of companies, the use of technical terms. Getting the names right with all their weird spellings is a mark of good journalism. Here are some entries in the Flight International style sheet which the editor kindly allowed me to see for my Sir George Cayley lecture. There are warnings about the spellings of the names of those eminent people, Beaumont, Smallpiece, and Ewings. If they can possibly do so, the printers always get those names wrong. There's something about the spelling of the three kinds of bogey, the landing gear, the apparition, and the golfing term. Then there are the foreign words and names. Some daily papers flaunt their insularity by refusing to print accents on French words. But the aviation press has to take pains to get the words right. Flight reminds us that the famous name of Breguet has no accent, as is proved by the facsimile of Breguet's signature on the tails of his aeroplanes. And the Temple Press style sheet of the aeroplane carried forward some of C.G. Gray's recommendations. He was on the Technical Terms Committee of the Royal Aeronautical Society in 1919 under the chairmanship of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mervyn O'Gorman. Aeronautics style sheet warned those inclined to be slapdash that data means things given, things therefore which couldn't possibly be obtained in future experiments. And it interpreted that very much loved term at an early date as meaning late or never, and the equally beloved under continuous and active review as meaning set aside and forgotten. Then again it referred to names and the usage when dealing with proprietary names such as Autogyro, capital and an I, and hovercraft. Hovercraft mustn't be confused with lever cars, hoverflies, hoverbarrows, cushioncraft, skimmers or germs. Perhaps the aviation journalism of the past has been too sensitive to style, too anxious to get the names right, too keen to get this, these details correct. And in the future we may see less attention paid to such matters. Let's now look from the specialist press to the national and its air correspondence. The daily journalist often writes in a hurry to meet a deadline. And in newspaper work, unlike aircraft construction, there's no such thing as late delivery. If the copies were a minute or a second behind the deadline, it won't appear in the paper. The good journalist is always nearly late with his copy, but never late. 
English in the Times is the name of the Times style sheet. A copy was handed me by Geoffrey Dawson when I first went there to do a spell as the paper's aeronautical correspondent. Preceding me, there had been Harry Delacombe, 1907, Hubert Walter, 1910, then Colin Cooper in the same year, Guy Livingston, R.L. Carton, 1919, C.L.G. Colebrook in 1923, and E.C. Shepherd in 1930. Arthur Narricutt, who's been the Times aeronautical correspondent since 1940, is probably the only one to see the start of our invasion of Europe on the 6th of June, 1944. He was in a Lancaster. Um, now, the Times style sheet. One or two points about that. Yes, of the word problems, problems, without which no official document or political pamphlet would be complete, the Times style sheet says, everything can be turned into a problem which has to be solved. Whenever you see the solution of a problem, or the problem to be solved, suspect it as useless jargon. Now, those who write English should, I think, stick to English and avoid borrowing from other languages, especially American. Americans insist, for example, on changing transport to transportation. Yet the Oxford Dictionary says that transportation means removal to a penal settlement. And they insist on scattering prepositions about, like litter on bank holiday. Americans never check anything. They check up on it. And in the United States, nothing ever pays. It pays off. Nothing closes. It closes down. Nobody goes home. They go back home. Yet aeronautical English has been becoming progressively more American. It's one of the most immediately noticeable changes. And it's an unwanted change. Abbreviation is another curse of aviation journalism, which has been spreading. The new words formed of capital letters, the acronyms, are everywhere. The International Civil Aviation Organization's lexicon devotes ten pages of small type to them. And in the next edition, it looks as if it will have to devote twenty. They open the way for every kind of misunderstanding. In his dictionary of abbreviations, Eric Partridge lists eight different meanings for the abbreviation D, the capital letter and ten for the abbreviation D, the lowercase letter. And there are fifteen different ways of abbreviating the words Royal Air Force. The advice to those about to abbreviate should be the same as Mr. Punch's to those about to marry. Don't. The British standard glossaries are of use because whether they offer the best terms or not, they at least offer the possibility of consistency. British Standard 185 in three parts is the glossary of aeronautical terms. There's a British Standard on typeface nomenclature, one on proof correcting, one on symbols, signs and abbreviations, and another, which is of great importance to aviation writers, on the presentation of numerical values. If the common market is indeed coming closer, it is advisable that aviation writers and all writers on technical subjects should agree about where to put commas, full points and spaces 
in the presentation of numerical values. They ought also to agree on the rounding out of values when conversions are being made between metric and British imperial systems of weights and measures. Correspondents writing about aviation for the daily and the Sunday papers find them less independent than they used to be, more set in content and layout. God is on the side of the big circulations. The family circle and the ordinary oath are the objectives, and the papers won't willingly do anything to offend them. But a great deal of the news, if printed, would offend the family circle, so it simply doesn't appear. Then there's the slant given to the news to fit the presumed readership of the paper. Objectivity in the presentation of news is unattainable. Somehow, the writer's views creep in. There are few words without subjective connotations. At the time of the sit-down protests by those who advocate the abandonment of nuclear weapons, there wasn't one national newspaper that contrived to report events objectively. It's not only fear of offending the family's circle that is reducing the scope of the newspapers. Their freedom to speak on all subjects is being whittled away by many other wings. Acts of Parliament limit what may be reported. The reporting of divorce cases is forbidden, yet the cases occur, the statements are made, the things happen. If people want to read, the, read about them, a rarely free press would be allowed to report them. And there are plenty other, of other restricting devices. As Mr. Cecil H. King has said, the combined effects of the libel law, the Official Secrets Act, and parliamentary privilege, he might have added the rules for contempt of court, mean that praise is always permissible, but informed criticism, criticism usually is not. Of course, the grounds for parliamentary action, reducing the freedom of the press, are always impeccable. The public must be protected, or the courts must be protected, or the accused man must be protected. In the name of public policy, Sins against the freedom of expression multiply almost daily. People criticize journalists for the frequency, for example, with which they use that word alleged when they're reporting police actions. But the word mustn't be left out until the case is over. Journalists are made to iterate it by the existing law. Foreigners are sometimes astonished to read in English newspapers that after a murder has been committed, a man spends eight or ten hours in a police station helping the police in their inquiries. The rational mind is well aware, in fact everybody who reads the words is well aware, that they mean exactly the opposite to what they say. The man is doing all he can to avoid helping the police. The journalist is not telling the truth, but he's forced by law not to tell the truth. If he were to write William Smith, 28, of no fixed address, spent 10 hours at Tooting Police Station yesterday, doing all he could to mislead the police in their inquiries into the Acacia Avenue murder, he might be writing the truth, but he'd be in jail soon after the words were published. The gathering of news is now more extensively the work of the agencies than it used to be. Aviation stories come into the newspaper offices from the agencies or from the public relations men. 
Air correspondents spend less time than they did 20 or 30 years ago going out to look for news. And apart from the news that pours into the office, there is another and perhaps the most important source, other publications. The most intense activity in which the writer for newspapers and periodicals must engage is not writing, but reading. Whatever the form of writing, reading will be its foundation. Copious, continuous, attentive, discriminating reading. Almost all the news can be gleaned from reading. There's hardly ever been a piece of aviation news that hasn't leaked, perhaps unobtrusively, in a local paper, a house magazine, a bulletin, a lecture, Hansard, a patent specification, or some obscure official document, long before it's given the appropriate treatment by the rewrite men and blown up to make the splash on the main page of some national daily. It may have started as a three-line paragraph in the rag bag of a provincial weekly, or as a small advertisement. It's not by going out on aerodromes that news is gathered, as much as by industrious, intensive, interpretive reading, especially of the small print. Facts which the British government guards from British journalists with the awful majesty of the Official Secrets Act have usually been out in the Wandsworth Bottle Polishers Advertiser months ago. When someone goes up to a journalist in the Royal Aero Club and with a show of secrecy imparts to him in the strictest confidence, of course, a momentous piece of aviation news. That journalist, if he knows his job, will have read it already. Reference has been made to those who tell journalists things in confidence. Aviation journalists would have a more difficult time than they do if they were not often told things in confidence. Specialists must know more about what's going on than they have opportunity to write. But basically, a journalist ought not to listen to anything under a pledge of confidence. The reasons are clear. First, the facts may already be in the office, having got there from another source. Second, the task of the ordinary working journalist is to tell his readers the news, all the news he can get hold of. And his duty is to his readers and to nobody else. And it must be remembered, too, that ingenious people desirous of holding something secret often call journalists together for a conference and deliberately tell them the facts in confidence. It's a means of preventing the news from getting out, and the journalist, true to his calling, should have nothing to do with it. But it's one of the facts of modern aviation journalism that it has become difficult to avoid these conferences. And there are other ways of achieving this same end of smothering the news. There's that curious creature, the spokesman. The spokesman is the journalist's tranquilizer. Spokesmen are everywhere nowadays. They ladle out soothing syrup. They issue bland denials. They divert inquiries. And they protect the head men from having to answer questions. And if they're wrong, what does it matter? They're only spokesmen. When there was journalistic as opposed to financial competition between the papers, reporters 
would have had their copy thrown back at them by the news editor if they'd talked about spokesmen. But now the papers of financial counters, spokesmen are accepted. They say bother. Then there are the release dates and the embargoes, and particularly irksome for the aviation correspondent, the D-notices. The release dates and embargoes are a form of interference with the public's right, if it were a free public, to read the facts in its papers and magazines. Ostensibly, the D-notices are advisory documents. They have no legal validity. There's no censorship of the press in Britain. At least, that is the official position. But in fact, there's the grimmest and most efficient censorship of the British press. Only a few weeks ago, we saw the Official Secrets Act invoked for political purposes to make it difficult for those who disagree with the government defence policy to express their views. In May 1937, note the date, 1937, the Air Ministry kindly arranged for a visit to Andover by General Field Marshal von Blomberg and six other German officers. Half a dozen of the Royal Air Force's secret aircraft were drawn up for inspection. The distinguished German visitors did inspect them. They sat in the cockpits. They examined the instruments and controls and had all their questions answered by obliging Royal Air Force officers. But the British aviation correspondents who were there were not allowed even to look into the cockpits. The government trusted the Germans, who were shortly to try to annihilate us, but not British journalists. And they have the same attitude today. The national interest is invoked to justify stopping people from getting the news. Governments take it to mean not only national security, but also national morality or prudery, according to the way you look at it. Our aged lawgivers don't like newspaper readers being given the facts because they don't think the facts are good for them. It's but one of the encroachments on individual liberty, a part of Parliament's perpetual striving for greater power over the people. The old men lay down the law and the young accept it without effective revolt. It's government of the servile by the senile. Or should we say government without the people, against the people, and despite of the people? And the press, which ought to fight it all along the line, accepts it. Another factor in determining the shape of our newspapers and periodicals is the advertiser. The advertiser's influence has been adversely criticized, yet, except in special circumstances, it has been beneficial. Few believe the lurid stories about advertisers putting pressure on editors. But there are those who think that the influence of the advertiser is undesirable. And it may be that newsletters and other publications which do without advertisements are in some ways better placed than the ordinary newspaper to tell the truth as they find it and to criticize. In aviation, certain newsletters have achieved financial success and have achieved influence partly because they've rejected advertisements. Aviation Studies is one such. It undertakes research contracts and regularly publishes reports 
which speak out on many matters, perhaps more fearlessly than do other aviation writings. But there's another side. The aviation press is avowedly there to help aviation, and the British press to help British aviation. There's little room for conflict between advertisers who support a paper which is supporting what they themselves support. The aviation press has been firmly supported by the British aviation industry. It's been supported from the beginning until today. But now there is, as there must be, a diminution in the strength of that support. Uh, there's one form of advertising which doesn't do much credit either to the papers carrying it or to the advertisers, and that is the special supplement. Uh, they're really paid for puffs in a way, yet large numbers of otherwise highly moral newspapers do carry these supplements. And it's a perpetual source of astonishment to the true newspaper man that advertisers, so critical in other ways, should be the dupes of supplement canvassing. Uh, British aviation has been lucky in having one or two people who've never been under restraint from advertisers or from any other silencing influences. Lord Brabazon's one. It's doubtful whether any newspaper or periodical would have had the courage to initiate the campaign in favour of the use of kerosene in turbine engines in preference to petrol. For a journalist, the subject bristled with danger. And when Lord Brabazon started that campaign, there was a moment of stunned silence in the press before the papers realized that the law of libel couldn't get them, provided they saw to it that the whole responsibility for the criticism fell on Lord Brabazon. That incident emphasized the timidity of the press, even when matters of public interest are concerned. And under pressure, that timidity is almost daily becoming more marked. And I think it must increase also as the proprietor of the publication becomes further divorced from those who write it. In Northcliffe's day, the proprietor watched every line that appeared in his paper, and any working journalist who had done anything outstandingly good or outstandingly bad would hear directly from the chief, as they called him, before lunchtime. Harry Harper used to be eloquent about the chief's comments on his treatment of aviation news. For after all, it was Northcliffe who gave aviation journalism its primary impetus. Today, Beaverbrook is the only remaining proprietor who takes a direct and daily interest in the work of the journalists on his papers. He's one of the dying race of newspaper men who own newspapers. And whatever his critics may say, those journalists who have worked for him, almost without exception, and regardless of whether they approve of his policies or not, have obtained professional satisfaction from their jobs. The attempt has been made in the big groups to substitute group editorial directors for proprietors, but this doesn't appear to work. Whereas a writer will take praise or blame from a Northcliffe or a Beaverbrook he tends to bridle when some brother journalist dishes it out. Today, 
the heads of the big groups of producers speak with authority not on journalism or editing or writing or illustrating, but on finance. If a young man has an ambition to become a great newspaper proprietor, he should study not the newspapers, but accountancy. If he has an ambition to become a great aircraft manufacturer, he should study not aircraft, but accountancy. It's no longer worth studying the thing produced. Don't put your daughter into journalism, Mrs. Wellington. Put her into accountancy. Perhaps in a few papers, the air correspondent is still expected to be ready to turn his hand to different jobs. News reporting, book reviewing, preparation of items for the graveyard, dramatic criticism, and so on. And in any of them, he strives for a style which not only fulfills the style requirements which have been discussed, but also the style strictly in the character of the particular paper. If the aeronautical correspondent of the Times were to be asked to produce a leader for that great paper, and it has happened, he must drench his style in Times. He must avoid enthusiasm for a cause and sit on the fence churning out those rolling cadences and conjuring up an atmosphere of lofty judicial impartiality backed by massive learning. Time's leading articles are predictable, and the one discussing the Society of British Aircraft Constructors display at Farnborough next September will go like this. Visitors to the flying display and exhibition held by the Society of British Aircraft Constructors at Palmborough have an unrivaled opportunity for assessing the effects upon the industry of those general and particular steps taken by the government in the implementation of the policy of rationalization instituted by Mr. Duncan Sands in 1957. On the one hand, there is the indisputable evidence of mounting productivity and of a continuously intensified pursuit of the essential export markets. On the other hand, there is a suggestion of a slight but perceptible retardation of the rate of technological progress, and this, it must be admitted, cannot but cause some anxiety because of its potential effects on the commercial viability of the products. If, but, moreover, but now the Daily Express, of course, will write a different comment. That will be determinedly bright, snappy, didactic. Look up at the Farnborough skies. New British airplanes swoop and die. The world throngs to see them. In speed, economy, comfort, they are what the airlines want. Canada, Australia, New Zealand could use them. Will they buy them? No. Why? Because the government helps common market countries to outsell Britain. What is the remedy? Dismiss these guilty men. And, of course, the daily worker must press its politics all the time. So its leading article, I'm afraid, will contain references to the boss class with their champagne and cigars sitting in the farm reviewing sites, enjoying the fruits of the sweated labor of the toiling masses. American influence is strong in journalism. And, of course, of all American publications, time has had the widest effects. Time and its many imitators use a mixture of odd facts slipped in in the midst of dramatized, descriptive sentences, and they have rather quaint ideas about the English. 
We could take this out of next September's time. Farnborough hotspot was New Delta, from Greek capital D, hypersonic fighter with souped-up DH Rolls jets, rocket packs and after-burning, gun the flying blowtorch through Mark I to crack the air wide open close to the standees. Rather good show, what, goofed a moustached Englishman, as the plane circled. In 220 lush viewing stands, industry guest contacts gawked. Guzzled 6,700 cold ducks, swilled 3,400 U.S. gallons of choice French wines, burned up 2,600 prime cigars. Sated news hawks tottered to phones to file rose-tinted beats for city editions. But tough U.S. technical observers were sceptical. Their verdict, British show promise, but must get U.S. know-how right now if they are to team in for first flight airplanes. Military comment by US top brass. British planes are basically sound, but lack combat equipment. No British pursuit plane has ash can or cigar lighter. No bomber has built-in soda fountain. While the characteristics of newspapers and periodicals and their styles have varied so widely, the basic ingredients have also been changed. The things that used to make a good story for the daily paper or a good article for the weekly or monthly magazine have altered with the passing years. Before the First World War, almost any flight was considered worth writing about. Air races and air meetings were all fairly extensively reported. The 1927 Schneider Trophy was, I suppose, the the uh, most widely support, uh, reported of all the air races. But then, gradually, those sort of things began to die away. And uh, there's been an enormous change. The King's Cup air race gets very little attention nowadays. Aerobatics contests get practically no mention. We've come a long way since that first band of national newspaper air correspondents used to spend their time tearing around the world reporting aviation events. Harry Harper, the Daily Mail, Charles Turner, the Daily Telegraph, Edward Bowyer, the Daily News, Ronnie Walker, the Chronicle, Stubbs Walker, the Herald, Harold Pemberton, the Express, Colebrook of the Times, Frank Fisher of BUP, and myself of the Morning Post. If you turned up their splash stories now, I suppose they'd seem trivial in the face of more recent events. As for the future of the aviation press, it's fairly predictable. The aeroplane and commercial aviation news and Flight International are both in the Daily Mirror group of newspapers, where Aeronautics was before it ceased publication. It's safe to say that the aeroplane and CAN and Flight International must diverge, for if they don't, they'd be competing for advertisement revenue. Then we have, of course, the highly regarded monthly publication, Aircraft Engineering. We have the Brighton Informative Air Pictorial, uh, but that, from a purely journalistic point of view, suffers under the disadvantage of being tied to a propaganda organization, the Air League. And that tie must, to some extent, define its policy.
The Royal Air Force Flying Review claims to be Europe's best-selling aviation mag magazine. Then we have the stunningly outspoken Popular Aviation Review. Finally, there's Aviation and Space magazine, which is to start publishing next month. Then there are the Bulletins and House magazines. Today, British Aviation has three distinct kinds of publication. The ordinary commercial publications, like the Aeroplane and CAN, and Flight International, Aircraft Production and Aircraft Engineering, and in the near future, Aviation Magazine. Then the controlled circulation publications, meaning that in one way or another a selected circle of readers is given a copy of each issue free. And then the bulletins. It's clear that from the regrouping of the aviation industry, it is becoming harder for the commercial publications to survive. But their scope has been reduced by the controlled circulation publications and by the free bulletins. People are less inclined to put down their own money to buy a paper, however good it may be, when they're being inundated with free papers, some of them produced on the most lavish scale. Well, now I've got one or two slides rather, rather vaguely selected, which I'd like you to have a look at. Um, we've got some, uh, just one or two flashbacks to very early days. Then I've got one or two to illustrate certain of the stories that have made the, the, uh, the, uh, big, uh, part, uh, main pages of the then I've got one or two about aircraft that have been news, people, and uh, a few other odds and ends. And now, first of all, I want to to look into these flashbacks. Now, the, the first thing, you know, the women's magazines are nowadays the great money spinners, of course. Uh, but in the before the First World War. Uh, uh, there were very few of them, but this was one of them. Was uh, this cutting is from one of them, and that took a quite serious interest in aviation and reported the Hendon meetings regularly. Uh, and this was a report I wrote. This was the picture that went with it, uh, uh, which appeared in this paper in 1914. Reginald Carr and Miss Saunders are the people in that. They used to have women's meetings and so on. So that was the day when women's papers really took quite a serious interest in aviation, which they don't now. Now then, uh, the next thing I'm going to show you uh, is the, the um, this is rather, this is rather an interesting one, because this is the cover of Aeronautics, the original Aeronautics, on the date when I first wrote for it in 1921. And now we'll look at the aeronautics cover as I recreated it in 1939. This, this actual, this one is, is 1961, but that is the form of the cover which, um, which I recreated in 1939. And every feature on that cover, it's not a simple design, it's all a worked out pattern with those rectangular um, patches carefully thought out to produce certain definite results. Well, now then, 
we, we were talking a moment ago about house magazines. Uh, it's another one that I started, I think, one of the first house magazines, bulletins. This one is November 1928, and it's the Handy Page Bulletin. I think Handy Page was one of the first to start this bulletin business that has now grown to enormous dimensions. There's Squadron Leader England there, pointing up to the famous <laughs> Handy Page slotted wing. And on the right here is uh, Flight Lieutenant Webster, uh, now our Vice Marshal, S.N. Webster, who won the 1927 Schneider Trophy race. And now we're going to have a look at one or two of the things that have been stories. Now, Christopher Draper, Major Christopher Draper, started his passion for flying under bridges in 1915. And in October 1931, he warned me that he was going to fly under the Thames bridges, and I um, stationed myself, one of them, and wrote an enormous story for the Morning Post, which was headed, Mad Major Returns to Town. Well, that, that was only one. Then he went on doing it, and this particular picture shows him in 1953. And it has an, a journalistic interest, because it was taken by Daily Mirror photographer. The editor of the Mirror has kindly allowed me to show it to you, this picture. It's really quite a remarkable one, because a photographer was in the clock tower, Big Ben clock tower, uh, for quite a different purpose. I don't know what he was doing, taking pictures of the clock or something. And he suddenly saw this aircraft coming along, and he, and he swung his camera and managed to get this extraordinary picture. So I think that is a worthy effort uh, in, the, in the way of uh, quick work by a photographer. Now, this is the, these are the days, Derby, I don't know what year, I'm afraid, when aerobatics used to be worthy of a picture and worthy of a small news item now this is this is uh this 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 has a lesson this this little two or three slides i'm going to show you now because uh today as you know the unions don't allow a correspondent to carry a camera but uh, there weren't those sort of rules in the, the day which this indicates and, and the date is clearly defined by that article by Mussolini about the pact with Russia on the left. And on the right here is the story which I wrote about a, an air-sea exercise. Well, now, then, this is what happened in that air-sea exercise. We, uh, we, um, an engine went fat, and we came down miles away in the sea. And I had my camera with me against all the Union rules, so I began to take photographs. And this was one of them. And I went on taking photographs until HMS Versatile turned up about six hours afterwards to save us. Well, now, whether today that would be allowed, I don't know. I don't think it would. But in those days it was, and there was my page, all my own, my own work, <laughs> photographic work of, of that thing. Incidentally, I dreamt the whole of that crash before it happened. That's why I was very ready with my camera. Now then we get to this air race business. Now this, this is a page from the aeroplane um, which shows um, a report on an air race uh, which had a special cross-country feature. It was run, started and run by a newspaper because in those days newspapers still wear 
quite interested in air racing. Now, this is the most famous air race of all, of course, in my opinion, uh, certainly the one that drew out the biggest core of writers and photographers uh, out to the Lido in Italy, the 1927 Schneider Trophy. I think the biggest air race, I don't suppose there will be anything like it again for the numbers of people who saw it or the amount that was written about it. There's Webster's winning figure, 453 kilometers an hour. Worsley second at the bottom, 439. Quetzetti, who was the who was the Italian pilot who did, I think, two for six laps. Bernardi, the, their fam most famous man, only managed to complete one lap. That was a, from the newspaper point of view, it was a terrific race. And there's a, a, a glimpse of the enormous crowds. The whole of the Lido was solid with people. That, of course, was the aircraft, the S-5, which... Um, designed by R.J. Mitchell, with the fuel in one float to counter torque recoil and wing radiators, all kinds of uh, fascinating special features. Well, now, the only kind of race that makes sense from the newspaper point of view now is something strikingly original, and the Daily Mail Blerio anniversary race, I think, did the trick. That was one of the incidents in that race. And here we have the typical business of an interview. Uh, Captain Walker, who did 57 minutes 47 seconds, is here being interviewed. And you can see, uh, just to, on his right, Stevenson Pugh, who was the man of the Daily Mail uh, air correspondent, who actually, I think, thought out the whole plan of that race. It was an enormously successful event and did contrive to to um, create newspaper interest, although in most most other races are now a dead loss. Now then, we'll look at a few aircraft that have made news. This is rather an interesting one. This is Professor Lowe's radio-controlled aircraft at Farnborough. And I think the date is rather interesting because it, I think it's 1916. Now we have another precursor of what everybody's trying to do now. This is the Crouch Bolus deflected airstream, uh, deflected slipstream job. Now everybody's now again on this, but when Crouch Bolus, uh, w w uh, when this aircraft was produced, I think it was more considered to be more newsworthy than the present-day deflected slipstream aircraft. They don't seem to hold much interest somehow. Now, there's another. Now, this, this illustrates a point about news pictures. Anything that looks utterly weird and all wrong <laughs> is nearly, is, is often a news picture. This is the Sierra Air Horse at Farnborough in 1948. And here we have another example. That was a tremendous news story, as you will all remember, um, the bedstead, with uh, my old friend Shepherd at the controls. That that was a tremendous story because it looked weird and was weird, really. And so it had all the elements of a good story. Now here's the Snekmar flying attar, which again was a was a good story because, again, it looked weird 
And here it is at the Paris Salon with the pilot André Morel, 1957, doing that amazing, probably many of you were at that Paris Salon in 1957, and saw his extraordinary exhibition there. It was a staggering sight to see this thing move, take off, and move quite gently across the aerodrome and back again. Now here's another one, the gyrodyne, and uh, this this was the precursor of the rotodyne, held a world speed record for rotorcraft. Now let's look at one or two of the. Uh, oh, now that's the uh, that's the uh, the other precursor of these uh, present day attempts at STOL. That's of course the gugnut. Now we'll have a look at one or two people who've who've made news: Waza and Lord Brabazon whom I mentioned a few minutes ago, Lord Brabazon. Now here's the card that uh, Daryl Davy Rowe circulated to many of his friends not very long before he died. This shows him on his little bi-car, which was, which was, I think, his last invention. He was one of the men who could make news. Even when he'd given up working on airplanes, you probably remember he started this amazing currency reform business. Now here, uh, aerobatics, well now they've absolutely gone out of the news, and yet I, I cannot understand why, because uh, it's a fascinating business, and here is uh, the man who, in my opinion, is the greatest aerobatic pilot who's ever lived, now dead, of course, but he's the greatest aerobatic pilot we've ever seen, Leon Biancotta, the one on the sitting down. On his left is Duke Dressler, who invented a means of uh, writing down aerobatic maneuvers, which is still used. But I think it's the greatest pity that aerobatics seems to have completely dropped out of the newspapers. You get the most extraordinary performances put up, and nobody uh, writes a line about them. Well, now then, just for one, uh, one or two concluding things, editors, as you know, are always looking for, for brilliant people. And one of the most difficult thing, most difficult kind of man to find is a good cartoonist. And uh, when I was um, doing aeronautics, I was always looking for good cartoonists right from the beginning. And right at the start, I determined to get a man who I thought at that time—that's a long time ago—was uh, a very great cartoonist. It was before radar, and I asked him first of all to do us a Christmas card. And this is what. He what he did. It's Brockbank, who I think is one of the most brilliant cartoonists, and that was right at the beginning, and as you see, before before Radar, and, and now here's another cartoonist whom I introduced to the aviation world, who I think is again a brilliant man, and this is Bruce Angrave. We've just got one more of his. Well, there you are, ladies and gentlemen. That is the is the picture. I've tried to sum up for you what is happening in uh, aviation journalism and tried to suggest where it may be going. Thank you very much.